Michelle Donnelly, and this is the Christian Single Moms Podcast. I believe that every single mom can discover a life of peace, power, and purpose, and that you can do it right through the things that God is carrying you through in your season as a single mom. Here we talk about all of the things that matter to a single mom, but most of all, I hope you found a place where you feel like you belong. Let's get started. Hey, thanks for being with me today. I'm your host, Michelle Donnelly. When it comes to recovering from abuse in the church context, sometimes that has some very unique and specific problems attached to it. Many times survivors are either victimized or not supported by their church communities and trying to figure out how to navigate that when you're also reeling from the effects of abuse can be very difficult. I'm joined in this conversation today by author Mary DeMuth. Mary is here to help us understand some of the root causes behind the reasons why so many abuse survivors are not finding the support that they need in their churches and Christian communities. But in addition to that, Mary is here to help us sort out how it is that we can find some safe people to do life with and go on this healing journey alongside. Over the last several months, I've received several emails from women asking, where is the loneliness type quiz? And it is back. As single moms, loneliness is something we all have to deal with, but the reasons why we each deal with it are different and don't have that much to do with being in a relationship. To learn more about your experience with loneliness, what's causing it, and some of the ways out, start with our What's Your Loneliness Type quiz. You'll find a link to that down in the show notes or by heading over to plusoneparents.org. I think one of the things that can be so confusing about trying to recover from abuse and expose abuse in a Christian context is the fact that sometimes the actions of people in our churches don't reflect the heart of God, but yet sound like they could. Scripture can get thrown around and a lot of Christianese can get used and it can just create so much more confusion for the victim. What I really appreciate about Mary's approach is understanding that when we dig into the scriptures, not only do we see the heart of God in these situations, but we also then have the eyes to see who of His people is living true to that and to determine who we really can walk with. Here's my conversation with Mary DeMuth. Mary, I am so grateful to have you with me today. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Mary, I'm really so glad to get to sit down with you today because many listeners have an experience perhaps of being victimized or just maybe even not supported by their churches as they've been walking through an experience of having been abused and then trying to recover beyond that. And I know that you have, though, such a deep heart, both for those who have been abused and for the church, that in talking about ways that we can address this better in our churches. It's not with any intention of condemning the bride of Christ, but to lift her up. And so I would like to know if you would help us to just get our minds around, around this, though, at the start and give us some eyes to see how these things actually do play out 
in the totality of scripture that we do see this tendency of not believing victims or mishandling abuse reports, even in the Bible. Yeah. And that was one of the reasons uh, why I wrote We Too, how the church can respond redemptively, Mm -hmm. (laughs) emphasis on redemptively, to the sexual abuse crisis is that I wanted to be able to talk about what has happened in the past, what has happened in scripture, and how we can move forward. And what I do love about scripture is that it's descriptive and not prescriptive. Mm-hmm. And so, in other words, it will describe a sexual abuse situation, but it doesn't say, um, you know, this is a good thing to happen. <laughs> it mm-hmm. doesn't. In fact, every single time there's sexual violence in the Bible, war follows. Mm. And so that is like a huge cautionary tale about what sexual violence brings to the world. It is a violent act and it is um, horrid. Mm-hmm. And even if you look at the narrative of Bathsheba, the um, all of the blame in the biblical narrative, even though people preach differently, all right. of the blame in the biblical narrative goes to David. When Nathan confronts him, he says, you're the man. Um, when we see the lineage of Christ, we see that um, Bathsheba is listed as Uriah's wife, which again, just restates the fact that she belonged to Uriah. She was his mm-hmm. and was not to be raped. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, and we see a lot of interesting um, there, there, it, there's just a lot in uh, the Word of God about how the Lord protects and loves women. Now, uh, there's also some problematic texts as well, but um, I think it's important that a lot of those problematic texts tend to be, again, on that descriptive side, mm-hmm. not treat women this way side. Right. So right. anyway, that's kind of how I approached it. And that was my hermeneutic as I looked through it. Yeah, I think that's so critical what you pointed out that there's war or some unrest that follows after these examples. Um, and that, that tendency though, it just reveals that underlying wickedness that the victim certainly feels the victimly, the victim certainly is experiencing, but that if that victim is not cared for, if this situation is not addressed systemically, that it points to a sickness overall that leads to the destruction that that not only that one individual is experiencing, that not even only her family, for example, might be experiencing, but that this is something that we should look at in our churches and say, if we have one person who is suffering, it's going to cause all of us to suffer if we don't address this. I really, really wish pastors would listen to this conversation because mm-hmm. I think one of the most difficult parts of me being a survivor has been not ever hearing about the story from the pulpit. Mm-hmm. And I can count on one hand how many times I've heard about it spoken in decades. Yeah. And uh, several of those fingers were me speaking about it, not mm-hmm. a pastor. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if you can just normalize it, not that trauma should be normal, it's right. terrible. But if you can at least say to your congregation, this exists, it happens it's traumatic. There is help. There are ways to get through it. You're not a freak. Yeah. I think we will really help. I think it's the same um, in the domestic violence uh, narrative mm-hmm. as well. If you, if pastors can just get up front and say, it happens. Yeah. It's real. It often happens in Christian homes. Yeah. And here's what we can do about it. And you're not alone. And here's how to heal. 
Yeah, I totally agree with you 100%. I think there's a when there's that disconnect between my experience and what is being taught from the pulpit, it's sort of this sense of like, is it just me then? Is mm-hmm. is this just something that I'm seeing and you know, that that I'm just, you know, faceless and voiceless and nameless and and that deepens that sense of trauma just feeling so isolated in that experience. And then on top of this, though, this experience specifically is so at the center of the battle of good and evil. This is such Mm -hmm. spiritual warfare. And so to feel that you now are a flag carrier in this spiritual war that nobody else sees going on, it is, again, it just is continuing that sense of victimization. And then the church is being victimized as well and doesn't even see it. You know, that the enemy is prowling around, that some of these perpetrators are sitting next to some of these victims in these churches, and nobody knows. And I think that's just the the thing that I've seen. There are a lot of well-meaning pastors. There are a lot who, if they could see it or they understood it, they they know that there's more that they'd like to do, but they also are not necessarily, LifeWay did a study in 2018, but finding that they're not also though trained really to understand mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what's the right way to respond. How do, we, how do we decide, for example, in a domestic violence situation, if we see you know, a couple, you know, who comes in looking like they have marital problems, you know, the question is often, how do we decide who who it really is, or if it's not really both of them? And I think, though, if if we as a, as believers went farther back into the story of good versus evil, if we really looked at, well, how does evil walk around and prowl around? You know, how does Satan pick off his enemies? And how does that influence then people in the Bible in the ways that they then carry on through life? And what does God do, though, too? And I think that's a piece of this that you sort of pointed to. There are some narratives, though, where God is very clear through what happens, what he thinks about these instances. And one of those that you mention in the book is Hagar and how Hagar's story actually shows us what this corrected godly approach should be. Would you speak into that a little bit? Yes. So we know in the story of Hagar that she's got a lot of things going on. So she is forced because she's a slave to have sex with Abraham and then um, magically gets pregnant because that's what usually happens Mm. (laughs) after that. And her mistress Sarai gets really mad and sends her off into the wilderness. And Hagar is utterly and completely alone and despairs of her life and is weeping and having a, a very hard time. And the Lord appears to her and um, she names God. She's the only one in the scriptures that gives God that gives God a name, Elroy, the God who sees. And um, he tells her to name her child the God who hears, which mm-hmm. is Isaac. So you have this like, or Isaac, um, you have this amazing dynamic between this outcasted Egyptian woman who's not part of the nation of Israel, so to speak, even though that hasn't happened yet but it's right. not part of Abraham's you know line right. and she is met by the god of the universe in the wilderness and yeah. i can't think of a better analogy for women who are suffering um, and they feel utterly alone. And a lot of times the church has outcasted them or placed all these burdens on them that they mm-hmm. are ungodly for leaving a, an abusive situation mm-hmm. and yet god is the god in the wilderness who says i see you. I take notice of you. I will be with you. 
Yeah. Yes. And I think one of the things I love about Hagar's story is the fact that it happens twice, actually. Yes. That yes. She that's goes, the first time. Yeah. Yeah. She goes once, but then there's in that there's some time that still has to incubate though, that she gets a promise. She, she gets this promise that she's going to see this descendancy of, of nations come from this pregnancy, but that she does have to go back. And I think as you said, prescriptive and descriptive, this is describing a very specific situation. This is not a word to abuse victims that they need to go back to their circumstances. This was just Hagar, right? But that in that, as the time incubates, that she is exiled, she is sent out, she's kicked out of of the household, but that in that place, she despairs and she's afraid this promise is not gonna come true. Me and this boy are gonna die. And God comes down and reveals again himself to her, not shaming her, not saying, girl, I get this, like, come on, you know, like, where's your faith? Um, Not at all. He comforts her and provides for her and the boy. And I hear this story a lot of times discarded because of the fact that Ishmael was not the son of promise, that Isaac the offspring of Abraham and Sarah is the one that we really should be following. But, you know, Ishmael and that whole storyline, that's that has nothing to do with Jesus and the coming of the Messiah and those sorts of things. So let's not even put too much weight on that story. And we miss so much when that happens because it shows, as you just so lovely put, put in such a lovely way, that God, it sees. He sees the victim. He sees the one who's been exploited and manipulated and and abused. And that he's not silent about that. And the other part of that story that's beautiful is we say, well, he's not part of the Commonwealth, but... um, he, uh, her offspring, um, Ishmael, is part of the parentage of the traitors who rescued Joseph mm-hmm. from the pit. Mm-hmm. And so you have this beautiful mm-hmm. um, interwoven story that the offspring of Hagar rescues the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that to me is, again, this beautiful tapestry of how God weaves the story. When you're in the middle of the mess, it's hard Mm -hmm. to see that. As you walk with the Lord longer, you begin to look back and see, oh, okay, yeah, that was a terrible situation, but this is how God has used it for the good. Yeah. So and if I, he hadn't been, if they hadn't been there, Joseph wouldn't have been rescued. Um, they would, his brothers would have killed him. And then what would have happened? Right. Right. And I think that's the thing that it's taken me a long time to see these stories in the Bible and look at them, not as one offs that, oh, well, that happened for that person. Or here's this, you know, cool redemption story or whatever for them, you know, that this is a, this is showing us though, how God is working through these things that we're going through. And that even when we can't yet see it in our own lives, that we can pull back into these stories and and watch them play out again and again as we read the scriptures and go, no, this is who God is. This is what He desires. He, he does not desire suffering just for the sake of, of seeing somebody learn a lesson or um, you know, stick it out so that, you know, maybe someone else will change or those types of things that he really is working through these very wicked circumstances to just show how much bigger that his redemption is. There are three words every abuse survivor must hear. God hates abuse. 
Plus One Parents has released a devotional for abuse survivors called Safe Haven, a devotional for the abused and abandoned. Safe Haven is a biblically-based guide to abuse, giving you the tools that you need to identify it, respond to it, and heal from it. Safe Haven is now available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook formats, and you can locate a link to purchase your copy down in the show notes. Mary, would you share about modern evangelical theory of theology, though, and how what is being taught is not addressing these things? What is it about what is being taught at the pulpit just misses the mark when it comes to believing victims and then holding perpetrators accountable? I think a lot of it is unsaid and it's a lot of unspoken misogyny that's out mm. there. Like today I saw um, that there was a major bishop in the Eastern Orthodox Church that said, um, and he's in trouble for it, but he said that all women want to be raped, basically, that mm. that's part of what they want. And anytime there's a rape, the woman want a part of it. So it's like, he said it out loud, but there's other people who just don't say it, they just believe it. Mm. And so that's part of the problem is a lot of it's unspoken. A lot of it's never talked about. As mm. I mentioned before, we just need to talk about this openly mm. so people don't feel alone anymore. Um, I do think that there is... Um, a lot of really big misunderstandings, especially when it comes to date rape or marital rape, um, that somehow you asked for it, or if you're married, then, you know, there's this like, um, this card, this free card of having sex at any moment. And that, that mm -hmm. that's what that means. Or in date rape, you'll have people ask things like, what were you wearing? What did you say? How did you lead him on? And not understanding the narrative or the idea of um, abuse of power. And that typically mm. um, men are more powerful, stronger than women. Um, of course, women uh, harm men too. So I'm not saying that that's not the case, but the vast right. majority is men against right. women. Right. Um, and, and so... Literally, we also don't understand, and this is where I think we could learn a lot, is we're very non-trauma informed. Mm. And we don't understand that when someone is being pursued, whether they're being abused or raped, um, there are several different ways to respond in the trauma. You can freeze, which um, I did as a child. Mm. You can uh, flee or fight back, um, which most people don't do. Um, and you can fawn, which means to appease the person just to get it over with, even mm -hmm. though that's not what you want. And so when you, when you do this, when you don't hit somebody, yeah. <laughs> then people judge you and say, well, if I were you, I would have kicked him where it counted. Well, mm -hmm. you can't know that because in a traumatic situation, your brain shuts down yeah. and, um, you can either fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. And right. and typically people freeze or fawn. They usually mm -hmm. don't run and they usually don't fight because they are, you know, just brought to the spot and they cannot move. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's so important what you pointed out about those various responses, because I think, as you mentioned, though, those can be used to shame the victim for having some part in it. And that's what you were pointing to, I think, with the David mm -hmm. and Bathsheba account that, and I think the tendency to 
interpret that scripture comes from this mindset of, mm-hmm. oh, well, she must have had some part of it. Well, she was bathing on the roof. So it mu- she must have had some part of it. How can we look at that, though, and see, as you said, the power dynamics that are going on there? Yeah. So when I look at that story, um, first of all, it says that men came to her door. I imagine there were several of them. They were the king's men. And the first thing she would have probably been thinking and why she went with them is that she probably thought her husband had been killed. Mm. I mean, if you were a woman at that time and your husband was a valiant war- warrior, one of David's mighty men, you would have thought, oh no. But the other thing to think about if you know the scriptures is that she was um, most likely cleansing herself from her cycle mm. because the scripture Scripture was clear that she had had her monthly cycle and she was in a mikvah, which is a Jewish bath, which I saw in Israel all over the place. Mm-hmm. And um, typically, uh, these were not like naked bathing. They were just like you would do if you didn't have a shower anymore. So like sponge baths, things like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. And um, and also the fact that David wasn't supposed to be there. And also this other idea that um, if someone wrote this and I thought it was fascinating. They said, I was in a culture where people had to bathe openly, um, like at a river or whatever. And the other people around them in the community chose to look away. Mm-hmm. And so you gave the person your privacy, their privacy because you ha- gave them dignity and you didn't stare at them. You looked away because there was no other way to bathe. Mm. And in this case, David had all the opportunity in the world. Plus, okay, I have so much to say about this. Yeah, go for it. (laughs) Plus, he knew, obviously, Mm. he knew her husband and he knew her father. Her father also was one of the mighty men. He knew who she was. And so when he asked them, who is that lady bathing on the... Mm. He already knew. He knew Mm. exactly who who she was and he knew exactly what he was going to do. Mm. And when she gets to the palace, even this is where the scripture comes in about like a woman going into the wilderness and being raped and the person's always at... The rapist is always at fault because she could have screamed and no one could have heard her. Same idea in the palace because... She could have screamed, but mm-hmm. no one would defy the king. Yeah. So there was no way for her to say no. There was no way for her. She could have cried out. There would be no rescue. And therefore, she had no power in the situation. He had mm-hmm. all the power and she had none. Mm-hmm. I think this is so important, too, that we look at the narrative with these eyes. Because as we said before, this is not just about one sexual act. That that's sometimes even how this gets boiled down is, oh, this is a sexual act. And so likely you had some part of this. But what you just described is the fact that David had a lust in his heart. He was peering at her that he knew. So he was manipulating. He was deceitful in even asking the guards, oh, who is this? Or asking his Mm -hmm. men, who is this woman? That he's creating this scene, he's setting the stage for him to intentionally victimize her. And as you said, this is a thing, though, that God does not want us to forget. It will say, yes, David is a man after God's own heart. There were many things that David did that were right and in, you know, up in the right direction. But that when it came to this instance, this revealed such weakness in his character that though he was a man after God's own heart, he was still a man and that Mm -hmm. he was still doing these things that that were not just one act one isolated act of a moment of passion, which is often how this kind of gets flung around. But the fact that, no, this was a lust of his flesh 
that had many sins that were involved in the perpetration of it, and that God ultimately held him accountable. And I think that's the the part that's often missed is when we get the man after God's own heart label, God held him accountable for what he had done. And as you said, it continues to show up, Uriah's wife, Uriah's wife, Mm -hmm. like, don't forget, you know, and it will say multiple times in the scripture, he was a man after God's own heart, did everything was right in the sight of the Lord, except for the case of Uriah's wife. And that is for us, I think, a reminder that, yes, you can be forgiven for the things that you have done, but there are still consequences for that. And I think that that's a big piece that's ultimately missed. But we don't ever have to deal with the consequences, though, if we never ha- if we never fully address the situation that's going on. Well, and the consequences were, again, war, um, mm-hmm. fighting, children messing up and all mm-hmm. sorts of Absalom mm-hmm. problems and the yeah. death of that child. Mm-hmm. And so a result of rape is always violence. Mm-hmm. So, so critical. When it comes to this, the victim in these situations, when it comes to a person who is trying to cry out for help, is trying to find support, sometimes there is this piece of advice that's given that often is something along the lines of, if it's not necessarily like you must be causing it in some way, there may be this piece that is um, that this is God's will for you, that you mm. suffer in this way. <laughs> Um, that God wants you to be quiet, that perhaps, you know, and this I've heard firsthand that, um, you know, by your good example, someone's heart could be changed. How then also, you know, if we're looking at scripture for what is, what is, what is the right way for a victim to be approached? How can a, how can someone who's in this spot, listen to that and no, this is not good advice. Like what, what can we point to that would indicate that that is not God's will? We are called to resist evil and resisting evil means telling the truth about the evil that's happening. And the problem is, is that um, especially in the church, we want to have a happy church. We have this happy church, happy world syndrome where things in the world can be really terrible and really bad, but in the church, everything's good and happy. And if you disrupt that by telling the truth about a fellow parishioner parishioner or something that's happened to you that's not pretty, then no one wants to have that because they want to live in their their bubble of happiness. Um, But I would argue that telling the truth is is actually spiritual warfare. Mm. And um, keeping it inside is what will keep you traumatized for the rest Mm. of your life. An untold story never heals. And I wouldn't say that you should proclaim it to the housetops or anything like rooftops. I would say find a safe person, someone who's proven themselves over time to be exceptionally safe. Get that story out of you. Find some counseling, some trauma-informed therapist that will help you. Um, but keeping it quiet for the sake of a perpetrator is only allowing that perpetrator to keep perpetrating. Mm. And I know there are a lot of people too, though, that carry guilt of, I never told, and then they went and 
um, did a bunch of stuff after me. And I have, I, I know that I have that in my own life, even though I was only five years old when it happened. Um, it wasn't until I was an adult that I tried to figure out who those people were and try to stop them. But um, the one that I could find had died. And so I was actually kind of grateful that I didn't have mm. to deal with it. But um, there's grace all around. But um, I would say it, you cannot heal if you keep it inside mm. and you must share it with someone safe. Mm. Mary, how do you think we can find who some of those safe people would be? Because I think there is, there's just a mountain of things of, you know, will people believe me? Will they, will they blame me? Will they think that I'm crazy? You know, there's just all of these things that swirl around and, and, and in a, especially in a, a church context, you know, there's this fear that like, this is going to get out. I'm going to be marked if people know, how do we start to navigate that? I wrote about um, traits of safe people in my book, Not Marked, Finding Hope. And I think it's hope. I have to remember my own subtitles. It's hard. Yeah. <laughs> hope and healing, finding hope and healing after sexual abuse. And um, actually, your listeners can get that list if they subscribe to my 21-day email sequence. And they can get that at we2.org slash 21 days. And one of the days we'll talk about what are qualities of safe people. Because mm. um, a lot of times we're so damaged when we've been harmed this way that we don't know what is safe and what is not safe. Yeah. And I will say this, that most perpetrators are very verbally great. Like mm -hmm. they know how to say, especially Christian perpetrators, well, Christian with quotes around them. Right. Uh, Christian appealing um, uh, perpetrators can say all this religious language that sounds so convincing, but it is actions that define the person, not their words. Um, that's why Jesus talks about wolves in sheep's clothing. Well, what do wolves do? Wolves devour, mm. but when they wear the sheep clothes, they say all these sheep words. So yeah. we have to be super careful. And if you can just divorce yourself from the words and look at their behavior, mm -hmm. if someone has violated you, that means their behavior is proving who they really are and they are unsafe. If you have a friend, on the other hand, who you always hear gossip from them about all their other friends, then you know that they are unsafe because their action shows that they're an unsafe person. So mm. you have to train your mind not to be so persuaded by words and just simply like divorce yourself from that and look at the person's actions. Yeah. You just said there are like three things I could go back to with what you just said, because that is one of the things abuse survives, thrives on creating confusion. Mm -hmm. That you don't know which one to, which way is up. You don't know who to trust, and we sometimes will take a person's words in as an indication. This was totally me. Take it, take their words mm -hmm. in as the indication of who they are, and yeah. not never even look at their actions. And sometimes this is where we get into situations where we're like, well, if the actions don't match up, and this was me. If their actions don't match mm -hmm. up, then then I must be seeing it wrong. You know right. that there is this. Mm -hmm. Um, you're probably being gaslit, but then there's this self-doubt that also is just on top of that. Maybe even a self-gaslighting, if you'd call it that, but where you're you're mm -hmm. you're explaining your way away your own reality. Um, and so being able to say, no, believe the behavior, believe what you see, and and move into that, that I think is so important for 
just a, it's a great reminder. If you've heard it before, if you've never heard it before, just like put it in your notes in your phone right now. Like that is just such a, a great piece of wisdom for navigating these kinds of things because people do tell on themselves. It's just not usually with their words. Well, and we see this with all these abuse scandals going on around the United mm-hmm. States. I mean, look at the behavior of what Bill Hybels did. Look at the behavior yeah. of Ravi Zacharias. They yeah. saw that Ravi's behavior was Whoa. known. They knew what he was doing. And it, mm-hmm. they may not have known he was exploiting women, but they knew other things that were huge red flags. Yeah. But his words were so persuasive. And I think that's why the church has a hard time is when... When Bill Hybels gets confronted about this, of course, there's a narrative of, oh, it's just the enemy. He's attacking the church and the evil media doesn't know what they're talking about. But we're not, we're looking at their words. We're not looking at their actual actions and those Mm -hmm. actions will tell on you. Yeah. And I think that's one of the confusing pieces too, is I know people, even after the Ravi Zacharias fallout, you know, who were like, but I came to faith because of some yeah. things that this person said that, that, you know, this, this impact, his teachings impacted me and those types of things. And this goes back to your point about wolf and sheep's clothing, though. Jesus told people, watch out. They, I'm sending you out as sheep amongst wolves that this is going to happen. There will be these false teachers that mm-hmm. the devil masquerades mm-hmm. as an angel of light. So yes, you can still have a person who's got all, as you said, all the right words. And they, there can be some powerful things that that come out of that. But it can't, it does not then mean it's not mutually exclusive. It does not then mean that, oh, there's no way this person could have a sin nature. There's no way this mm-hmm. person could be doing something wrong. Well, and, uh, you know, you have to go back to Balaam's donkey. I mean, God Mm -hmm. used a donkey, (laughs) the voice of a donkey. Mm -hmm. If God can use a voice of a donkey to, you know, change things, he can use anything in any circumstance because he's God Almighty. So he can use even those who have selfish motives or who are predatory. He can use their words in people's lives, which means he's God and we're not. But that doesn't dismiss just because someone had good words Mm -hmm. doesn't give them a get out of jail free card for their actions. Yeah. And I think this is where some of that re-victimization takes place because the same wickedness, the same sin that would be occurring in a situation in a one-to-one abuse type of a scenario is the same wickedness that's being played out on a larger scale where you do have these abuses of power in a church context or in a Christian leadership type of a context. And that is where you are actually seeing the same thing play out. It's the same devil behind it. It's the same. He's the same, he's running the same game, but it's just on a different scale. And I think that's the trouble that once you do start to wake up though, and you do start to see it, when you do have safe people that believe you, when you do start to heal and get help and, and move forward, that can make sometimes a, a church environment triggering that mm-hmm. you're you're seeing sometimes the same thing if you're in a church environment that is narcissistic that's not healthy mm-hmm. and so if you are a person though who is feeling the recoil sometimes in a church setting sometimes there's a reason for that there is and i don't want to make light of that and i also understand that especially women who have walked through domestic violence and domestic abuse what tends to happen is because the husband is, quote unquote, an upstanding citizen or a good mm-hmm. tither or well-known in the community, whatever, 
um, the church and church leaders tend not to believe the mm-hmm. wife, but the husband because he seems awesome or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be a problem. And so then to go back into another church, obviously you probably are not going to go back to that one. Yeah. But to go to any church is going to be triggering for you. So be gentle with yourself. Mm-hmm. But also you might want to seek a smaller, safer, maybe different um, stream of church just to get yourself away from the other mm. way that things were done. Yeah. Um, and I'm not going to say which stream or anything. Right. I think you could be in, you know, a Methodist and just jump to a Baptist because you just can't handle that system anymore, whatever. It doesn't matter. But just to give you the freedom of you may need some months to heal and watch some churches online for, you know, some feeding, but it may take you some time to fold back into a congregation. Um, And it would be unwise to jump right back in. You need to kind of heal first and also understand the dynamics of churches you don't want to be at. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that just takes time and time away. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like my husband and I, we were church planters in France for a couple of years. And I didn't really understand the church in America and all of its problems until I came back Mm -hmm. because I'd had three years away to be able to look at it and exegete it from afar. And so sometimes you need to go away from something to be able to rightly see it. But when you're in the middle of it, um, you're you're just part of the whole thing and you cannot see. Yeah, I think that's such a fascinating perspective, Mary, because when we're in that fog, you know, we have that difficult time discerning what's going on. And then though, if we are losing then also a church body, maybe we have people that we really love there. Maybe this Mm -hmm. is a place that we have lots of memories. Our kids were dedicated there, you know, baptisms, whatever the case is, that leaving that is another victimization. It's another loss. It's another thing to grieve. And I love the point that you just made though, that sometimes, even if it's just for a short time, getting out of that stream though, can just allow you to not have to deal though with reconstructing so much at one time, you know? Mm -hmm. And I love that you described it this way because that was absolutely the circumstance that God walked me through where he walked me into a completely different denomination, Mm -hmm. small church, church I would have never picked for myself. But in that place, I met some wonderful people, one of whom was a woman I consider my mentor, who had been through an abusive situation in the past herself, and had gone through a beautiful recovery journey, and was now on the other side of things, and was just able to see me and scoop me up and yes, the church was fine. The church was great, had other wonderful experiences, you know, but but this one piece was why God was moving us into me and my kids into this different zone was just to sit underneath some healing for a while and not mm-hmm. have to deal with some other parts of this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I love that. One of the things though, Mary, I think, and this is where the hope comes from, you know, so we're always like, okay, yes, these are, these are the the issues and these are the triggers and these are the things you're going to grapple with, but there are some hopeful aspects of this mm-hmm. as well. And that is being able to learn to tell our stories and what the power is in moving through that. And so in the case, for example, of this mentor that now her story was able to help pull me out 
of a really difficult circumstance and gave me some courage and some confidence and a safe place to start to tell my story. And we talked a little bit about you may not want to tell your story. And there might even be reasons that you're not even fully aware of, of why that seems just so daunting, or perhaps you don't feel like there's even really much to tell or, you know, whatever might be going on. But would you talk a little bit about, you know, when we do find those safe people, what really can happen? What's what's really taking place there when we are starting to open up and tell our stories? I think God has created us for community. He, as the triune God, is himself a community. And so when he created Adam, he also created Eve because he needed community. They needed each other. And so that's in the same way we cannot heal from a relational wound until we jump into a safe relationship. So Mm -hmm. a relational wound requires a relational healing, which seems super unfair because if you've been so, so harmed, the last thing you want to do is jump into trust with someone else. And that's why I encourage people to take little baby steps in. Don't just dump your story on someone, but test it a little bit Mm. before you, you know, give little bits and pieces of it first and see how they respond. If they respond weirdly or judgy, then pull back and that's not the right person. Then try Mm -hmm. again with someone else. Um, But I, I know that those deep wounds, you need another person to help you walk through them. Because again, a relational wound requires relational healing. Mm. You're right. That does though seem sometimes a little bit Unfair. I love that you put that it's word to totally it. It's unfair. It's yeah. like, <laughs> I'd rather just like isolate and because people mm. are terrible and I don't want to be friends with them. Mm. But, um, but as I've lived my life along, you know, several decades on this earth, I've realized that God creates us for community mm. and there is good community out there. It's hard to find sometimes, but it is out there. Yeah. I think that's great though, too, the way that you just were talking about easing into it and a little bit of, mm-hmm. but there was some trial and error to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but knowing that some of the greatest progress we can make in our recovery, especially at the beginning, is to find ways to start moving forward and have positive new experiences. Mm-hmm, we're not mm-hmm. able to always start unraveling the past if we don't have a new safe base to go from. Mm -hmm. And the way that I've started to understand this is in having some positive new experiences, I can feel safe where I used to feel unsafe, or I can feel Mm -hmm. I belong in a place I used to feel like I don't belong. So that when I do go backwards to visit those memories, it may still be painful, but those things of being unsafe or being unwanted or being in a place I don't belong, they're no longer true. So that's where some of this stuff starts to break off is this is painful, but there's things about it that are no longer true because I have taken these steps forward and Mm -hmm. I have been able to create a new base to work from, but it does not happen overnight. It does not happen easily. And I think the intimidating part, though, is if we feel like we have to do it all by ourselves and I'll say from my from my experience, God led me into it. I was praying for it and he made it. He made it all happen. I didn't have to. I was just throwing myself, <laughs> you know, I was just throwing myself at his mercy. And he, he, but he brought those people, but he did teach me also. I was an oversharer. So I was on the other mm-hmm. side of it where I'm like, oh, I can too. trust everybody, <laughs> yeah, you know, and giving too. my story away for free. And then when people kind of give you the eyebrow, I'm like, what's wrong with that? <laughs> um, but recognizing that story is sacred, you know, mm-hmm. and and 
But the Lord has people that have walked similar stories that will be able to hear that one little piece that you give and recognize something familiar and step into that zone with compassion and help Mm. pull you forward before maybe you're even really ready to go too far backwards. I have a um, relative who's walking through a divorce that was in an abusive situation. And um, they told me recently, I had two good days. (laughs) And those two good days were based on relationships. Mm -hmm. And um, I think you have to have that support system in place in order to really heal from trauma. You have to have other people in your life saying, no, you're not crazy. Yes, that is terrible. You know, just validate your story to be able to say, mm. you know, you're not seeing things. This really is a thing. Yes, that person was narcissistic. Yes, yeah. that was abuse. Mm. And that it was not your fault. Right. Mm-hmm. 100%. Mary, I am so grateful for the light that you've shined on this whole experience, though, of you know, what it is to walk through these circumstances in the context of community and places where we can have our pain validated, but also in how our pain can be redeemed. At the end of every conversation, I ask each guest the same question. And it is, if there was just one thing that you would want a single mom to know, what would it be? I would say first an apology on behalf of the North American church. Mm. And the apology would be we're so sorry that we have elevated the nuclear family as God's only ideal. It's wrong and we're sorry. Um, this is why at our church, um, we have a life group, my husband and I teach, and we you can choose like the parameters of your group. And ours is single, married, open age, because we want it to... We wanted to reflect the whole body of Christ, not just married people, not just single people, not just old people, not just young people, but everybody all together. And I think this is a pervasive lie that has happened Mm -hmm. for years and years. We have deified the family structure, husband, wife, children, that it is on it is on idolatrous levels mm. and i'm so sorry and you have to just go back to the new testament and see the apostle paul who was single and see the Im- immense amount of ministry that he did wrote most of that new testament and you see jesus who did not have a wife or kids yeah. um and he did this he changed the whole wide world so mm. being single is not second rate it's actually if you look at it the scriptures it's actually in advantage. Mm -hmm. But we're so sorry for making you feel like it's second class. Mm -hmm. I so appreciate that, Mary. That is just, that's a truth I'm grabbing onto right now. Thank you Mm -hmm. so much. Mary, would you tell listeners about your resources and how they can follow you? So um, it's marydemuth.com as well as we2.org, which has all the sexual abuse resources on that and the sequence to heal in 21 days. Not that you're going to heal in 21 days. That'd be awesome if you did. But it's we2, <laughs> we'll start we2. <laughs> yeah, no promises. We2.org slash 21 days. And yeah, wherever I am on Instagram and all that is at Mary Demuth. Mm, thank you so, so much, Mary. I'm going to actually include links in our show notes to make it easier for listeners to find all of those resources. But thank you so much for sitting down with me today. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much. If you found this conversation helpful, I've got a couple of others I can suggest for you. Check out episode 116, Is Abuse Grounds for Divorce? You might also like to listen to episode 112, Decoding the Narcissist, Exposing the Faces of Narcissism to Find Freedom from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse with Chuck DeGroat. 
I'd love to invite you to get more involved with the Plus One Parents community. If you head over to plusoneparents.org, you can sign up to become part of our free private community experience, the Plus One Parents Collective. On the website, you can also check out our blog and other resources on topics relating to dating and parenting, abuse recovery, and spiritual well-being. Or you can also get on our mailing list to receive Plus One Parent exclusive updates. You can also find us on Facebook or Instagram at plusone.parents. I'm so grateful that you're a part of this community and that you were able to join me for this episode today. I pray always that you would know that you are seen and you are beloved.